Sky. Hello and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Laura Ehrlich, and tonight's guest is Rebecca Mackay. Before I introduce Rebecca, a few housekeeping notes. Writer Mother Monster conversations are streamed live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and then released as an audio podcast on all major platforms. As always, please chat with us during the interview, and we will weave your comments into our conversation. Before I introduce Rebecca, I have also a few exciting updates for you. I've just launched the official Writer Mother Monster shop with everything from T-shirts and tea towels to onesies and undies. You can support the show in style. And this Mother's Day, May 14th, treat yourself with a writing class with me, your host and the author of the story collection Animal Wife. We'll share strategies for prioritizing our craft, explore examples set by other writer moms, and do generative writing exercises. It's only $60, and you can sign up on writermothermonster.com. And finally, a special thanks to our sponsors and patrons listed on the website. Your support helps make this show possible. If you enjoy the episode, please consider becoming a patron or patroness to help keep the podcast going. Again, for details on the store, class, and sponsorship, visit writermothermonster.com. Now I'm excited to introduce Rebecca. Rebecca Mackay's last novel, The Great Believers, was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. It was the winner of the ALA Carnegie Medal, the Stonewall Book Award, the Clark Prize, and the LA Times Book Prize, and it was one of New York Times' 10 Best Books of 2018. Her other books are the novels The Borrowers and The Hundred Year House, and the collection Music for Wartime, four stories from which, from which appeared in the Best American Short Stories. A 2022 Guggenheim Fellow, Rebecca is on the MFA faculties of Sierra Nevada University and Northwestern University, and she is the Artistic Director of Story Studio Chicago. Her new novel, I Have Some Questions for You, comes out on Tuesday, February 21st, and you can pre-order your copy anywhere books are sold. She has two children, ages 12 and 15, and describes writer motherhood in three words as galvanizing, conflicting, temporary. Now, please join me in welcoming Rebecca. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Rebecca? Fantastic, kind of. <laughs> I guess in general, a little bit exhausted at the moment, but everything's good. Yes. Well, you have a book coming out um, in less than a week, and you just flew in from somewhere to join us like an hour ago. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, this one was just for fun. I took um, my younger daughter has the week off school. So it's like, let's get out of Chicago for three nights of cash. Tents. I have all these flight credits from 2020. Still. <laughs> so we just went to we went to Miami Beach for three nights and we just came back and it was amazing. It's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. So we're both where it begins and you have a you're in the midst of a pub crawl with Story Studio, which is both online mm-hmm. and in person with great luminaries including Roxanne Gay so yeah it's a crazy time for you so thank you for being here yeah no problem of course yeah so let's start with your three words that you use to describe brother writer motherhood again those are galvanizing conflicting and temporary yeah. Why do you those words I mean different reasons for each one so um 
Yeah, the the galvanizing one, I think, you know, both of my uh, children are girls. Um, I think there's, you know, I, I'm sure that that uh, parents whose children are not, are not girls feel similarly, but there's something about like knowing that you're setting this example as a working artist, as someone who travels for work, as someone who prioritizes work um, that doesn't just feel like, oh, I'm like I'm neglecting them. They're going to be in therapy about this. It feels like then they are going to be grateful that they had this model for what, you know, a, a serious career looks like. Um, so that's the first one. The um, conflicting, I mean, I think that's just like probably they're, you know, we'll get into the stuff that probably everyone feels about all of this, but it's like all the like, oh, you know, can I, you know, it used to be like, oh God, what if my in-laws read this? Now it's about when my children read this. Um, and just the conflicts of, time and priorities and what you want to be doing with your day and all that stuff. Uh, that whole mess of it. The temporary one though, I was, um, I really wanted to talk about because I, um, so when I had my first baby, I had published a couple of short stories at that point, but that was it. I like had a novel that I kind of abandoned. I didn't, you know, and then, I had this baby and it felt like this absolutely permanent state that I was going to have a baby forever and things were never going to get any easier. And I was so hard on myself, like just trying to, you know, like pump enough milk so I could go and write for two hours on a Saturday at Starbucks, which was like the only time I was going to have. And until like maybe a week later, I might have two hours on the Saturday. And then of course I'd get there and get nothing done because I was so tired. Um, and there was some message board I was on at the time because this was 15 years ago and it was slightly pre-social media. Um, and I was just talking, I was asking people, I was like, what, you know, how does this even going to work? I like my baby's four months old and I haven't gotten any writing done and people going, your baby's four months old, chill out. Like you can, it's, it's okay. You can have more time. Um, which was very good advice. Um, and then someone, I can't remember who this was, someone on, online recently, I was basically doing the same thing to them. And they were like, no, but my kid, my baby is like, you know, five and a half months old and I haven't worked on my not like, it'll be all right. Um, it's okay to take a year off. It's okay to take a couple of years off, you know, and then if you, if you don't want that to be permanent, it won't be permanent. Okay. Anyway, I try to keep that in mind just about the whole thing too, where it's like, you know, God, this is hard. But then it's like, well, they're, you know, they're in sixth grade and ninth grade. It's not hard for that much longer. They're not home for that much longer. Things change. Yeah. yeah. I so, think that's good advice. You know, I remember the same thing with, I mean, this is not writing specific, but, you know, with all the sleep training and milestones and like you're totally exhausted and you don't get more than an hour and a half of sleep at a stretch. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, is this forever? And it's torture. Yeah. But sure enough, things change and, you know, then you're on to the next challenge, but at least it's a different challenge. So, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> tell us um, about the first novel that you completed. So you said when, when your first uh, daughter was born, you'd published a couple of short stories. So 
how did you kind of get through that period where you were at Starbucks exhausted and transitioned to sort of recommitting to? Yeah. I was okay. This is there's a lot of luck in here. Um, so that novel, it's the it's it was my debut. It's called The Borrower, and um, I had written this novel before I had a child, and then I can't remember exactly the sequence. Like maybe published a story, and then I was querying agents but the agents were get all getting back with the same feedback like nothing happens for the middle whole middle of the novel this isn't working and I was like oh my god you're right so I abandoned that novel and started a new novel but then I had the baby and um so the um the complete stroke of luck part was that um by this point so I, I I I guess I published three short stories um before or yeah before the baby was born I published three short stories um and so the baby was like five months old four months old or something like that and it was right in this period of me going oh my god this is never going to work um and the third of those short stories got picked for the best American short stories which was like not only you know huge of course in my career that would be huge in anyone's career but it was also Oh my God, maybe this can work. I need to get a website up because what if someone wants to find me and I don't have a website and maybe I should actually finish my novel. Like I should go back to it and I should, you know, um, so that's basically kind of what happened. I actually went back to the second novel instead and then that didn't work. So I ended up, then I went back to the first novel. It was, you know, it's, it was all a mess at the time and now it, you know, um, it seems simple in retrospect. It's also really funny too, because like the um, <laughs> I published a not my first novel. Three years later, my second novel comes out, and one year after that, my story collection comes out. So I have four books, three books. <laughs> I can't even count. <laughs> books in four years, which seems like, you know, um, first book took me ten years. Second book took me about five years because it overlapped because I was like abandoning and coming back. And then the story collection probably took me 14 years because like from the time the first story was written to the time the collection came out. So it was like, yeah. So like only 29 years of work for three bucks, like right to piled on top of each other. Um, but I would get all these like, Oh my God, you're, you write so fast and you're publishing so fast and you have babies. It's like, well, I wrote basically all of this before I had children, not, not, all of the second novel, but like all the first novel basically, and then basically all the story collection ish. Um, so, um, not all of it, but a lot of it. Um, so yeah, it's like the, the timing now seems like, you know, some kind of superwoman thing and it, it absolutely wasn't. No, I think that's so encouraging though, because people on the outside don't really know how publishing works, you know, and how long it takes and how, you know, you could have a book that you completed three years earlier and then it's finally published, you know, many years later and it, it seems immediate or, um, uh, easy or lucky or something, but it's, you know, as you said, you'd been kind of working on these projects for years and years and yeah. the time finally aligned and they were published. So I think that's that's great for people who are listening who maybe haven't published anything yet to to hear and to understand. Yeah. 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 It's definitely um 
you know, like I, I, on the one hand, it's I, I, like I, I do appreciate the, you know, the fact that I did this, the fact that I did publish those, you know, those three first books. It's like, and, and when I had little kids, it's like, I love that that's out there so that maybe someone who has kids can be like, oh, here's someone who publishes and who has kids. But I also don't want it. And I don't want it to be misleading. This was not exactly like I did. I did a lot of writing. I got a lot done, but not that much. (laughs) Now, at what point were you able to actually be writing at Starbucks again? Like how old were your kids? Were you you able to do that? Um, I do remember the first day. So I was also I was teaching elementary school full time. I left that part out. (laughs) That was a big part of it. And like. They're like nine weeks. I don't know. I don't think I even took had nine weeks. I might have had six or eight weeks maternity. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so, so that, was, that was a big part of it. Um, um, I do remember though, it, this must have been, God, I don't know how, I'm trying to think how on earth the timing worked out. I think that, so basically, um, the, um, the borrower came out in 2011. Um, and at that point I had like, my kids were like four and one. And that following school year, I went to part time. So I was only teaching like Tuesdays and Thursdays or something. Um, and so like maybe, so maybe it was that year, maybe it was the following year, but the first day that my youngest went to school, which was baby, baby Montessori, you know, for three hours, like she'd started with like half an hour and it was one hour. And then they, like, they worked up to three hours. The first time she went to school for three hours, I went, I don't actually love Starbucks, but it's the closest thing to the school. I went to Starbucks and I wrote an entire short story in three hours. <laughs> I was like, <sighs> it was a very short story to be clear. Um, it was like three or four pages, but, it is in my collection. Like it actually like worked. Um, I, um, but, and then I had time left over. I finished and I was like, Oh, it's like 10, it's like 10 45. I got like 45 minutes. <laughs> Just like pure adrenaline and like pent up creative energy. And like, you know, like time felt different, you know, like it, it might as well have been, you know, three days at a residency. Um, <laughs> Just, um, if there's anyone listening later on audio, I am making manic typing motions in the air with my hands. Like, like, I think there's a Kermit gif and a cat one that both do that. Like, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can sort of cut that in there. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So were you able to write at home as well? Or did you have to be outside of the house? When they were really little, it helped a lot to be outside of the house. Because just that idea of, like, even if they're asleep, someone could wake up at any moment. Um, The interruption factor, it's also, like, do I feel, I don't feel like like my writer self if I'm also my mom's self. And am I going to write something dark or sexual? And then my kid, like, my baby is in the next room. Um, I did, at that point, I started doing residencies, which were huge for me. and honestly continue to be, but, um, you know, I, I'm constantly on this soapbox of the time to do residencies is when your kids are little, like people think it's going to be easier when they're older. It's not because big kids, big problems. Your 16 year old has a crisis. You want to be home versus your two year old has a crisis. And it's like, we'll get you another gummy worm. It's okay. Right. <laughs> um, 
you like that's the time it's fine to do them when you don't have kids it's fine to do them when your kids are older but like when your kids are between say one and eight that is who those are made for and you get there and you are like it is like me in the coffee shop where you just get to work right away and you see all the the childless people kind of like taking a couple of days to walk around. The painters are like, oh, I decided to stretch my canvases and just listen to podcasts today. <laughs> You're like, okay, well, I wrote two chapters and it's not because I'm like some genius. It's because I like take this time. So, I mean, God bless. Cause they're probably like, they need that fallow. They need to walk with the ground. They need it. I'm just so, no judgment. I'm just saying that parents get a lot done in a very short amount of time when they managed to do those residencies. So. Oh, yeah. No, I've heard that from from almost every guest on the show. Is that when you have dedicated time, whether it's 10 minutes or 10 days, it's yeah. like you will use that time to yeah. your greatest advantage. So that yeah. makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So now is it, do you still have to leave the house to write now that your kids are older? Or are you, how do you navigate the mom you versus the writer you? Yeah. No, it's, it's, at this point, it's not about that necessarily. Although now I have like my ninth grader comes home at odd times during the day. Like I'm never sure when her, like, she's weird school schedule. So I'll be like working and she just walks through my office at 10 in the morning on a Tuesday. <laughs> Um, but, um, so no, it helps to be somewhere else. It helps not to have distractions. Um, I, I do have ADHD, which was only recently diagnosed, which is kind of hilarious that it was only recently diagnosed because it's very obvious in retrospect, but, um, uh, you know, so ideally strapped into an airplane with no Wi-Fi. that's a plus writing time. Um, but barring that, like, yeah, away from home is just, you know, um, I have have less going on with the distractions of home, less likely. You know, if I've if I've bothered to take myself to the library with my coffee to get writing done, I'm just that much less likely to be like, well, first I need to catch up on email. Um so um yeah, it helps. But you know, I also I have this office with the door that closes and um that it doesn't feel weird in the same way to be writing at home or to be writing with my kids nearby anymore. Um, and I'm honestly, I like, I, it's not, it's yeah. Like there, I don't know. It's not the distraction still, even of like other people. It's the way that I could distract myself. That's really the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm so intrigued about the ADHD too. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing all these memes now, you know, like, Oh, it's my ADHD. And it's, <laughs> very familiar and I'm like wait a yeah, second yeah hold on yeah. so how well this is a tangent but it's no, we can go on the tangent yeah yeah let's go on a tangent so how has been how has having been diagnosed with ADHD helped you sort of manage it or has it no it has so first of all meds um which is just huge like I just don't feel as foggy um uh, when I'm tired or, you know, just like, um, that helps a lot. And then just kind of like figuring out, you know, actually not feeling guilty, not like assuming I'm being lazy if I'm not getting work done, but, um, just figuring out how my own brain works. Like I work best, um, with deadlines. I work best under pressure. I work best with a ticking clock. Um, 
it's also really interesting. A lot of creative people have ADHD, a lot of writers, a lot of visual artists, a lot of, you know, um, uh, ADHD does not mean you can't focus. It means, it means inconsistency in the control of your attention. And the flip side of the distractibility of the fogginess is hyper focus when you are into something that you're really into. And when I am actually actively writing, I, it's not like once I can get going, if I'm into a project or if I start, you know, if I actually get 10 minutes in and then I'm, then I look down at like four hours in and I've not been tempted to do other stuff. But, um, my issue, it's like, it's more complicated than that. It's like, okay, but all of the emails that are really urgent that I have to answer before I can really write because there's just so much, you know, these are urgent emails they should take 20 minutes to answer, but they're going to take me three hours to answer, which is then time that I wasn't able to spend on writing. So it, like um, it does affect the writing, even when it's not necessarily about the writing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but a lot of women uh, are diagnosed as adults because they just did not know how to diagnose girls. Yeah. Um, uh, cause, uh, I wasn't physically hyperactive or if I was, it was stuff you didn't see. It was like, I'm like moving my toes in a certain pattern in class. Mm-hmm. Never going to see it. Um, but I'm verbally hyperactive. Like I, you know, um, partly it's that I talk as fast as I do, but it's also like, I can't stand pauses in the conversation and I will, int- I'm like trying constantly at all times not to interrupt people. Um, but they just, that's just not what I, got diagnosed and 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 people of color a kid you know kids with adhd in school still it's this issue of it being treated as a discipline issue instead of a cognitive issue so it's like only little white boys have been diagnosed um little white boys they're in the spitballs they get the diagnosis (laughs) and nobody else the ones who can't sit still yeah yeah Yeah. squirmy little white boys named jason Mm -hmm. that's that's (laughs) Well, no. So I, I'm sure actually that'll resonate with a lot of people listening. I'm sure many folks, many women, writer mother monsters have ADHD. So yeah, yeah. we are not alone. No. Um, yeah. So let's I'm going to take a hard left and ask if you always wanted to be a writer and if you always wanted to be a mother. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Writer, I think I around seventh grade decided that was really that was really it. And I'd been writing all along, um, you know, like writing puppet shows or plays and making my friends be in the story collection with my friends. It's not like some new discovery. But then I was like, oh, I'm going to be a writer. Um, and then for a while there, I said that I didn't want kids like I think high school and into college. I felt like I didn't want kids. For, I know that by the end of college, I wanted kids because there was the guy I was dating didn't. And I was like, hmm, that might not work out. Um, but um, it was not, yeah, it was not some, like, um, deep, you know, like, I was not, I was not a baby doll kid, like, you know, whatever. But I babysat a ton. And obviously, like, I was an elementary school teacher. I, I'm obviously a kid person by choice. Um, so, and then, and then it took, you know, three years to get pregnant with my first. So it was a lot of effort. To, to have these kids um but uh yeah no, so but the writer aspiration predates the childbearing aspiration i guess 
<laughs> Did you ever think that they would be in conflict with each other, or was that not something that you really were? Yeah. So okay, this okay. So my father's mother was a pretty well-known Hungarian novelist, and um, this was she would have been born in like I always forget I'm bad at dates, but like 1912 or something. Um, and she had, my dad, she had my dad in 1935, which is a strange time historically to have a child in Hungary. Um, but she, um, she wrote about 40 books and she was divorced. She did, she, um, she was only married for like two or three years to my grandfather. And then she had this kid who the thing is, it's so hard to separate First of all, truth from reality, because my dad fabricates, fabricated a lot of stuff. Um, but there's always a grain of truth. Secondly, it's hard to separate out, like, what was choice versus what was, like, the war. Um, but he was really raised by the nanny. Like, he had, she had this, like, German nanny to the extent that my father's first language was German rather than Hungarian. Um, until she realized that this was a huge problem and then was like, ah, um, and started reading to him. And, but, um, like my father, it's funny because my father was a poet. Um, so he was a writer and he, he understood in many ways and he also just worshiped his mother. But, um, he talked a lot about like just being locked out of her study while she was working and, um, like it seemed very much like, writing and parenting were in conflict. The extent that when I was like, you know, a teenager, you know, remember hearing these stories and going, yeah, if she wanted to be a writer, she'd like, it was either or. And if I want to be a writer, I probably shouldn't have kids because this did not seem to work out very well. And my dad was a really, in, he, he was, he had a lot of issues. <laughs> like the heat, you know, like, you that at the time I was like, yeah, because his mother ignored him. And in retrospect, it's like he's going to have his childhood in bomb, bomb shelters. Like maybe that had something to do with some of this. His father was in Gestapo prison. Could that have had something to do with this? But um, and uh, all I got from him was like, yes, my mother, you know, completely ignored me for her work. So, um, I, yeah, I thought they were in tremendous conflict. And I, I remember writing some like poem in high school about how, uh, it was like for, to share at like writer club and it was about how I'd never have children because I needed to be a writer instead. <laughs> my books will be my children. Um, it was very silly. Um, but then, and then also I remember like in college taking, um, women's literature. It was like British and American women's literature or something like that. It was like a 200 level survey course. And someone asking the professor, who is a poet and and had young children at the time, um, going, well, have there really been any like because we're only reading up through like the early 1900s and going like none of these women had children. Have there been like, you know, what what, you know, is it true? Is it something like is it true that there have been no famous women writers with children or something and I and I remember her saying, "No, Toni Morrison has kids or has a son or whatever." Um, but that was kind of <laughs> like one example. <laughs> okay, like Sylvia Platt. No, no, that's not a good example. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I'm sure there were. I'm sure she was also like put on the spot in that moment of like, uh, Toni Morrison. But, um, um, yeah, it's also like we're talking about, you know, very different historical times. But what was, what was interesting to me was in that, like, for me, that wasn't like, oh yeah, there are counterexamples to me. It was like, there aren't, oh my God, none of these women we've been reading have children. Oh no. And, you know, obviously I worked it all out, but that was, that was like, I think I got the opposite message there than, than the one I was supposed to get. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, yeah, that it's easy to get that message. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you hear it like the narrative is it's either or. Yeah. Still, I think the prevailing message. So yeah. Yeah. It's just very silly. It and is. It, I think about like, because I don't, you know, it's funny. It's like I don't necessarily know who all has children and who doesn't. Because unless I am friends with them, I don't actually know. But like, so many. I mean, people who are like Lauren Groff, people like people who are doing huge and Celeste Ng, people who are doing big, amazing things. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, you know, getting a short story in here and there. But like, a lot of us have kids and are doing fine. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I usually ask this question at the end, but I'll ask it now. What message would you give to women who are listening right now who have kids and are writing and maybe they've published like one short story or two and, you know, um, yeah. Then that, well, then that's huge, first of all, because if you, you know, if you publish, that's huge. And if you didn't publish, that's fine too. Um, I mean, yeah, I just, I think that. I this is where I said I really wanted to emphasize the temporary thing of those three words. Like I just as much as I knew it intellectually, the fact that like, oh, you only have a baby for six months. It just didn't sink in, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's like, no, you can have a baby and everything. It's like, read the books about the baby, the baby, the baby. And no one it's no one's like. And then very quickly, you're going to have a toddler. So you better start preparing for that, too. It's like, no, the baby. Um. So you start to just really feel like you're going to have this baby forever and ever and ever. (laughs) And I just, um, it just, yeah, I just think, you know, I I think the one thing would, you know, first and foremost would be, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe there are fallow periods. It's fine. You forgive yourself and you decide how long a fallow period is going to be. Just like, okay, I, it's summer and summer break now means the opposite of summer break because now my kids are home. And I was getting great writing done during the school year, but now it's like, you know, sitting by the pool and getting, you know, in the pool where they like push off from you with their feet and like kick you in the chest. And then they come back up and spout water in your face. Like everyone's favorite. Like that's going to be my summer and the summer. But then the summer is going to be three months. And so, you know what, like I'm going to take three months and I'm going to think about my next book, but I'm not going to get a lot of writing done. And then. In September, I'm going to get a lot of writing done, and it's going to be great. Um, that in residencies. <laughs> do you think fallow periods are necessary? Yeah, like, I do. yeah. Just necessary for like mental health or for the writing process, even. Yeah, both. Both. Yeah. yeah, I just I don't think there's another art form where people are like, you have to do it every day, or you're not really like. Like, if it's any obviously, if it's anything physical, yeah, no, like dancers should take time off, <laughs> like, yeah. um, but. Yeah, painters should take time off. Composers should take time off. Know what you. Writers have invented the weirdest thing, the weirdest rules for ourselves. Like we've in, and we've also we've invented the idea of writer's block, which is like such bullshit. No, like no, no other 
discipline is out there being like, what if I have this condition? And then we are also the ones like where you have privileged white men being like, you have to write every day. You're not really a real writer. My wife leaves lunch outside my office door on a tray and I just keep writing and I miss Christmas and my family forgives me because I just keep writing. She types up the pages for him too and like uh huh. Proofreads, fixes his grammar, (laughs) makes it better while he's asleep. He doesn't even know. (laughs) Just goes in there and like um but um it's like it's just it's the stupidest advice, partly because like nobody can do that except for that one guy. And then also, um like you're just you need, yeah, you need time off. You need to like readjust. You need to come back fresh. You need to like, do other things. And, um, and obviously like, that's not an excuse to be like, for it to turn into a 50 year hiatus when you never intended it to. It's just like, yeah, like, okay. I, like right now, like I have a book coming out in a week. I'm not writing. <laughs> like, I made a note on the plane today of like a story idea. But like, you know, two sentences, but because I'm like, I'm doing publicity and I'm, you know, I'm like the writing I'm doing is like, you know, a craft essay that they, you know, is going to go with the book or I have like a written interview or this bookstore wants in, you know, wants five book recommendations for their blog and I have to write a thing up about each of them. So like, that's my writing and then endless email. But like, why would I expect myself to be writing something creative right now? My head is totally in this new book and anything I wrote would be like influenced. It, you know, it would, it would have all the pressures bearing down on it of everything going on in my life with like my concern about this new book. I'd be, it would be like reactionary writing or something Mm -hmm. like me being like, I bet that someone's going to hate this about this book. So even though that hasn't happened yet, I'm going to make this new thing totally the opposite because (laughs) (laughs) not a good idea. So let's talk about the new book. And then in a few minutes, maybe you'll read us a little excerpt. But tell us first, so what was different about the process of writing this book now that your kids are older versus writing the previous book when your kids were? Yeah, that's, yeah. I'm not sure in terms of the writing. I'll say the publication feels really different because they're old enough now to really get it. Um, it was, I think it was my story collection when they, they sent me finished copies and my younger daughter would have been like four and a half then. And just, we opened up, you know, it's like 30 copies of the story. She's like, good mo- job, mommy. You wrote all those books. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so busy. <laughs> um, but, um, so they, they get it now, which is really fun. Um, yeah. I don't know. Um, I think, Certainly, I will say one thing that was really different was um, the summer's um, God is here, um, where, like I said, you know, it was that like, oh, God, every and I would forget every year I'd forget and be like, I'll get this one in the summer. And then June would roll around. I was like, oh, right. This is like 24 seven child duty um, with uh, with this book. They were just much more self-sufficient in the summers. And then this past summer, they both went away to camp for part of the summer. And I was I was in like high editing gear rather than creative gear. But it, it was time that I really needed. And so um, 
yeah, that was different. Just, yeah, just, just a little bit more time. At the same time, though, it's like, it's so hard to talk because it was also COVID the whole time. Well, not the whole time, a lot of the time. And it was right in the aftermath of The Great Believers, which was just, you know, a significantly bigger book for me than my first three had been. So, like, it it was like, I started writing this book in early 2019. So, like, a little less than a year after The Great Believers came out. So it was, like, still, like, touring and Great Believers have constantly, which was amazing. And then hard wall at COVID and then home. And then I didn't get anything done that spring because we were homeschooling like everybody else. And then the summer was you know, like, it's just it's not it's not easy to compare and be like, well, it's because my kids are older. <laughs> it's like, a lot of other stuff going on. too. So. Oh, my gosh. Well, again, another little detour. But tell us about being nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award. Like, what was that like? Very different from each other. Because uh, the National Book Award, you uh, um, they they announce the long list, and it's this big deal, and then they announce the short list, and that's an even bigger deal, and then your sales go up, and it's amazing, and then you like fly to New York, and it's this like these parties and this red carpet thing, and then you find out like you like you you don't know like you find out in real time. Um, Pulitzer, I found out on Twitter after the winner was announced. Really? <laughs> Pulitzer is like, you, they, you don't know who was a finalist. Um, oh. they just, and it's like the, the Pulitzer, the Pulitzer announcements is like someone in front of a, is like in a meeting room at Columbia University, like announcing stuff and there's like a screen behind them and it like shows the whatever. And, um, so I knew like the winner had been announced and I was like, that's great. I heard that book, you know, some of the smart book seller, a smart bookseller had predicted that that book would win. And I was like, ah, he was right. And then like an hour later, someone tagged me on Twitter and was like, congratulations to the winner and also to the two finalists, Rebecca McKay and Tommy Orange. And there's a picture of like the stack of our three books together. And I was like, what? And then she was like saying that she was a judge. And I was like, but what if she's just nuts? Like <laughs> someone texting my agent. I was like, what's happening? Like, um, but there's um, uh, zero news coverage for that in terms of the finalists. Really, really big deal if you win. Really big deal for your bio, right, down the road. But not no interview requests, no local news, no national news, no nothing. Social media, which is great. Um, but wildly different experiences. Um, that is so strange and interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, equally grateful for both. Just like, um, you know, really, really, really different. But in both cases, um, you know, it's, it's this wonderful thing. I've been a judge for a lot of awards, including the National Book Award since then. Um, and you know, it's like, it's deeply felt and also hugely subjective. Like they, you know, they really, um, it's, it's several, it's, it's three, five, whatever people's favorite books of the year. That's what it is. Um, and it's it's wild that certain ones take on a weight that other ones don't when mm-hmm. the judge like the judging panel for the National Book Award one year could be interchangeable with the judging panel for like the Penn Faulkner Award the next year could be interchangeable for the judging panel for the Pulitzer the next year because they're just they're pulling like writers and maybe a critic and whatever. So it would it's just a matter of what prize they happened to be judging for that year. 
does that make sense? Like it's yeah, it's no, nothing. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing like. Um, but then certain ones have just way more cachet or way more name recognition or yeah, it's I mean it's it's all um, I think it's it's really it's it's psychologically healthy to understand how subjective and and kind of random it all is at this while at the same time it is you know these people pouring these judges pouring their heart and soul into like reading every book they possibly can and going to bat and loving book these certain books it's like they mean it nothing is rigged oh my god those things are so on the level like you know um but it's also just incredibly personal and subjective oh of course yeah yeah, yeah. have your daughters read your books my 15-year-old has started, like, two of them and then three of them, I think. She thinks she started three of them and then just, like, not gotten very far. <laughs> Did she give you any feedback or is she just kind she's of... Like, she's, no, she's like, that's really good. I just got it. Yeah, she's just um, got a lot of stuff going on with school, hard time with the follow-through. She she, she hardly finishes any books. Mm-hmm. Like, she'll finish books for school. Like, she's a huge reader. Always been a huge reader. Never finishes books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, once in a while, once in a while she will, but like, you know, it'd be like, you got like halfway into this incredible classic novel and you just stop. She's like, yeah, like, I forgot that I was reading it. Okay. <laughs> she got the sense. It was like, yeah. 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 <laughs> so speaking of, of your book, so I'm going to hold this up. Let's see if we can. So anyone listening later, I'm holding up. I have some questions for you, which has a really cool cover. Yeah. comes out on Tuesday. And Rebecca is going to treat us to um, a little bit of the book. Yeah. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read this part that um, is, like, not completely indicative of the book on the whole. Because, like, there are only a few sections written in this kind of strange way. Um, but it's so just basic background. It is a literary feminist boarding school murder mystery. Um And uh, basically this woman is, is returned to her boarding school to teach a class for just a few weeks. Um, and while she's there starts to really sink, it starts to really sink in for her that, um, the wrong guy is probably in prison for the murder of one of her classmates in 1995. And, um, she's staying in this guest house with this other guy who's teaching. His name is Oliver. And, um, there's some kind of, um, story on the news that her husband has texted her that she shouldn't like to stay away from um, because he knows it'll upset her. And the other thing you need to know is that um, constantly while she's there, because she's, she's, um, this is New Hampshire and she's left her um, kids with her husband in LA and people are constantly asking her who is watching her kids while she's there. Um, (laughs) All right. I'm going to give you the full screen, Rebecca, and take it away. Okay. Amazing. Oh, now you can see all the junk in my office. This isn't good. Wait, hold on. I'm going to. Okay. All right. Um, After Fran left, I asked Oliver, do you check the news? Was there anything big today? I was itching to check Twitter now, but if Oliver could just tell me what had happened, it would be better. It was important that I got sleep. Instead, though, he scooped up the remote and turned on the big TV in the seating area. And there it was. The reason Jerome had warned me off the Internet. Anderson Cooper with news story with new, sorry, Anderson Cooper with new developments on a story I'd found particularly disturbing. It doesn't matter which story. 
Let's say it was the one where the young actresses said yes to a pool party and didn't know. Or no, let's say it was the one where the rugby team covered up the girl's death and the school covered for the rugby team. Actually, it was the one where the therapist spent years grooming her. It was the one where the senator, then a promising teenager, shoved his dick in the girl's face. She was also a promising teenager. It was the one where the it was the one where the billionaire pushed the woman into the phone booth, but no one believed her. The one where the high school senior was acquitted of rape because the sophomore girl had shaved her pubic region, which somehow equaled consent. Oliver asked if I was hungry, and I shrugged. It was the one where the woman who stabbed her rapist with scissors was the one who ended up in jail. It was the one where the star had a secret button to lock the doors. Oliver called Foxy's and ordered us a white pizza with sage and a mushroom and onion pizza and extra packets of red pepper flakes. I decided I was allowed to eat one slice of each. It was the one where the harasser ended up on the Supreme Court. It was the one where the rapist ended up on the Supreme Court. It was the one where the woman, shaking, testified all day on live TV and nothing happened. Anderson had moved on to other topics, but Oliver asked if I minded his switching over to MSNBC. I didn't. I said, I can't believe there's finally cable on campus. We used to get three channels. Just to watch Beverly Hills 90210, we had to have Danny McCallick's mom tape it every Wednesday in Darien and mail it to us on VHS. The story was on MSNBC, too. The one where the judge said the swimmer was so promising. The one where the rapist reminded the judge of himself as a young rapist. It was the one where her body was never found. It was the one where her body was found in the snow. It was the one where her body, where, it was the one where he left her body for dead under the tarp. It was the one where she walked around in her skin and her bones for the rest of her life, but her body was never recovered. You know the one. The pizza was at the door. Oliver found us plates. He said, so who's watching your kids while you're here? That's up. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's enticing. <laughs> I feel like, it's like alarming. But <laughs> no, that's, yeah, I love that. Well, thank you. So tell us, I mean, this is, again, a bit of a digression, but I'm interested. Tell us about the, and everyone hates this question, but tell us about the, 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 where the story originated. Yeah. Um, I mean, lots of different places because it's a novel, but, um, but I lived on campus of the, for, for the past 20 years, I have lived on the campus of the boarding school where my husband teaches. Um, I do not work here. I don't have any responsibilities here because people always assume then when I say that they think it's like the facts of life. I'm like, I like have kids knocking on the door. It's like, I, I don't, but, um, uh, this is, I'll show you since I'm on camera right now. This is my office. And that is the door to a dorm of 40 teenage girls. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, they, they sometimes make noise, but that's kind of it. Um, and uh, so um, I was always just going to I was always going to write a boarding school novel. Um, uh, just thought it would be like on my deathbed, but I ended up doing it much sooner. Um, and then to complicate things, this is where it's like I can only give like I can only do a lot of, like a certain amount of information at a time where people get overwhelmed. Um, this is the school I went to for high school. Um, I was a day student at this boarding school. My husband did not teach here yet, to be clear. Um, so uh, I was like a you know financial aid day student. And then um, I met my husband in Vermont. 
we lived in Baltimore for a minute. And then I dragged him back to Chicago because I had a job here and he was a high school English teacher. And the place he got the best job offer was at my old high school. So we were only going to be here for three years. It's been 20. Um, and uh, now this is my daughter's a freshman here, which is why she's like I said, like she's like in and out. All day, it's because we live on campus, so she just comes home sometimes. Um, so um, anyway, uh, just that idea of like, you know, revisiting an old place, which I think it—I don't know—it's—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, 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 um, it's not as like vivid for me because I think the vivid thing is like when I go back to my college and I haven't been there for years, and I'm like, oh my god, yeah, that. Oh my, I thought that was over there. That's actually the sense I was getting at in here because I just never had that much, not, not that much time away from my high school. Um, so it's kind of not the vibe I'm going for, but I was still just, you know, fundamentally interested in the way a place can change meaning for us over time. And, um, and then there's all this other stuff. There's like a lot of Me Too stuff in here. There's this, um, murder, this wrongful incarceration aspect. There's this sort of like, true crime obsession aspect with like, this is a, the, her roommate's death is something that has really caught the public's imagination over the years. And so there's like all these YouTubers and podcasters attached to it. Um, so there's that aspect. Those are just other things that were on my mind a lot, you know, in the past few years. Um, so, uh, and then many other points of origin too, but those were the big ones. <laughs> those are really fascinating points of origin. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Where to go? I have so many questions and we only have like 10 minutes left. So let's talk about girls, raising girls. Yeah. Living amidst girls. And what do you feel? um, How do I want to phrase this? Uh, You talked at the very beginning about the feeling of responsibility of raising girls in this world. And can you talk a little bit about that, about raising girls and then living among them? And I mean, even if you don't work with them directly, they probably see you as an authority figure. So talk a little bit. No, they would not know. They do not know who I am. Really? This is where, like, I can't emphasize enough how much I don't work at this school. So we have our own entrance and um, I walk through the dorm, maybe like, I walk through the dorm sometimes because, like, that's where um, Ubers will pull out is out front. So, like, I'll go through there. But it's usually at, like, 6 in the morning, so they never see me. Mm-hmm. Um, they used to be babysitters for us, which was cool. But they definitely didn't see me as an authority figure because they did not even – they did not – they would not have – like, they didn't know who I was. Like, a couple of them babysat for us. But um, So, yeah, no. I don't, like, I don't live among girls in that sense. I don't live with them. I don't talk to them. I don't, like. It's very separate. Okay. Really, yeah. Um, so, um, but, um, but no, but with my own kids, you know, that, yeah, that is definitely something that's on my mind. Um, I, um, like, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think I, I, I have, I wanted, I always wanted kids to be ambitious. Um, and I got kids who are ambitious in very different ways than each other. The, the older one is the one where it's like, she, she wants to be an actress and she's like these big dreams and she's, you know, I fully believe she will have a successful career in the arts. I don't know exactly what that will look like, but she's, you know, she's really driven. And then my younger one is a perfectionist, which is not the same as ambitious. <laughs> um, it's like, it's a different, sometimes it can lead to, 
the opposite of ambition because you you don't want to do anything until it's perfect. But um, but also she's a really talented musician and um, wants to be a interior decorator. Like n- neither of them has really ever expressed interest in a job that's not the creative field, except for when they both wanted to be veterinarians, which I think every kid has to have. Like I, I wanted to be a veterinarian. To, like, <laughs> like, like you know, could not you know, barely squeaked through biology later, you know, when I actually got to study it. Um, but um, I, yeah, you know, I, I, I think, so first of all, I love that they're both really ambitious. I also love that the world is just that much better for their ambitions than it was when I was their age. Mm-hmm. It's I, my mom was a, university professor I didn't feel like you know she you know very into supporting whatever I wanted to do um I never felt like any kind of um anything holding me back from any any career that I would want to have but um just I don't know just there there are things that there's obviously there, there are things that are worse but I think in so many ways it's just substitutions like I grew up seeing anorexic fashion models constantly in the magazines that we all subscribed to and that would come to my house and that were a really, really big part of my life. And, um, you know, there were just like the body issue, the body, the body shaming, the, um, the slut shaming, but like just the, all that stuff that was out there. And then we like, I get and people are like, oh, it's so hard for kids today because of Instagram. It's like, yeah, but I don't know that that is any different, particularly in 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 size. I don't know that that's a bigger influence mm-hmm. for my only, you know, only my teenagers, you know, has a phone and is allowed on there. But like, I don't, I don't know that that's somehow a bigger plays a bigger role in her life than Sassy Magazine played in mine. And Sassy Magazine would never put anorexic models in, to be clear. But the other ones did. Um, but um, but then it's like mostly healthier stuff that she's seeing there. You know, I, I understand. Like, I'm, I'm not going to be Pollyannish about it. And I, I know that there are obviously issues, one of which is just plain old phone addiction, mm-hmm. you know, and everything else. But, like, I just I don't I think that they're getting significantly healthier messaging in many ways than I got in the nineties. Yeah. Um, so. The nineties were pretty fucked up. Yeah, they were. They really were. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Just the like, yeah. I mean, the, the things, the things, and this is a big theme of this novel for me actually too. Some, you know, someone looking back on high school in the nineties and, you know, realizing like, I can't believe we put up with that stuff. Mm-hmm. Also, I can't believe we're, we participated in that stuff is, is another big part. It's not like, you know, this is, this person is not like, you know, a victim here, uh, entirely, but, um, it's definitely, um, it's something that's been on my mind. Just this, you know, looking back and going, God, we really thought we had it all figured out. Just like these kids have, think they have it all figured out. And let me tell you, they don't, right? But like, we really were like, we are, you know, we thought that we were so progressive. We thought that we, um, not, not that, and I, I don't, I don't want to misspeak. I don't mean that 
anyone in their right mind thought that sexism and racism were over. But there was a sense of there was just, there was sort of a, within within the media, if nothing else, right? There was sort of a self congratulatory sense of mm-hmm. like pat ourselves on the back for how far we've come. What, you know, and it was very much the, the the narrative in the media was very much about how far we had come, rather than the work that we still had to do. Even if on an individual basis you knew that you know you knew sexism or you knew racism or you knew homophobia, just the the overall vibe was like. Well done. <laughs> um, and God, we were so far off the mind. You're like, and you look back, you know, 30 years later, you like, oh my God, we were, what, what were we doing? Oh yeah. yeah. No, it's so true. Yeah. Oh wow. Nostalgia is so prevalent, I feel like, especially amongst women. I think you and I are around the same age in our 40s, mm-hmm. looking back at that era and it's kind of like it's um challenging to feel nostalgic for a time that was really problematic yes yeah i mean that's all listen you know when i was researching the great believers it's it's about the aids epidemic in chicago in the 80s and i was you know i did mountains of research it was all mostly interviews with people who'd lived through this and they had an immense nostalgia for that time and they would, you know, they'd say things like, you know, it was the best worst time or like, you know, it was a living nightmare and I would go back in a heartbeat. <laughs> like, I, you know, just they, there was they would also talk about this camaraderie and this, um, you know, just also just being young. People can miss being young regardless of what was going on around them um, and a sense of purpose and, um, the you know, the the humor that often was part of of their activism. Like there's there, there's there's a lot to miss, um, and you know I I that that was fascinating to me. It's it's, it's I've even I've gotten a lot of people. This is very different. I've gotten a lot of people to admit how nostalgic they are for like the first two weeks of COVID lockdown, like which I know is bizarre, and I know no one no one who admits this to me, and, and I'm someone who I'll admit to this too. No one means. That they want it again. No one means that they're happy that it happened. No one means anyone should have died. Just like there was, it mixed in with everything else. There was something, and, and like obviously different if you were actively losing someone. And I, you know, so that's obviously not what I mean. But like, just the, the hunkering down and oh my god, we're all gonna make bread. And does anyone know where you can get toilet paper? There, people, there's something about that that. There's there's just this this piece of it that you can miss that there was this like yeah like I don't want to go back but oh there was something like exciting and as terrible as it was and I hope that anyone listening and I hope that you like I hope you understand what I mean I do not mean um, that I actually think it was great <laughs> but it's okay I think it makes sense yeah. yeah it's okay to miss the good parts of a bad time it's okay. That's very eloquently said. And yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, there was a sense of like coming together in community and supporting each other and a shared experience that is hopefully knock on everything would once in a lifetime experience that you're all living through together at the same time. So that's, yeah, yeah, there's something very communal about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, 
Well, (laughs) this is a good note to end on, sort of the finding the silver lining in the bad times. But also, if you haven't read, um, well, no one has read it yet because it comes out on Tuesday. I have some questions for you. Here it is. And these sales are so important and every book sold helps, right? So go go out and order it. It's incredible. And Rebecca, thank you. This has just been a joy. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Come back when the next book comes out. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk again about Pulitzer Prizes. So, fun <laughs> that. Not that would. Best of luck with this one. <laughs> Thanks, Rebecca. And thank you all for joining us this evening. Um, if you enjoy the episode, the- yeah, the episode as much as I did, please consider becoming a patron or patroness of Writer Mother Monster to help keep the podcast going. You can find details about that, um, about donations, about the store and the class for prioritizing our craft on writermothermonster.com. And I look forward to seeing you all again next week. Have a wonderful night and happy Valentine's Day. <laughs>